0: Paul is in Caesarea by the sea. There's also the Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon, on the slopes of Hermon. Paul is in the provincial capital, the Roman capital of the area, in Caesarea by the sea. We talked a good bit about that, and we put up some, some photos last week to give us an idea of the layout and where we were and the Theater that's been discovered there, and so forth, and the Jews want to kill Paul, and they're not letting up. And Felix says, "Look, why don't you go to Jerusalem with me, and then we'll hear from them. I'll be there." And Paul said, "You know, I, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't do have anything on my charges that deserve to be judged." In Jerusalem, I am appealing to Caesar. And he says, look, if I did anything wrong and it's worthy of death, let him kill me. You know, this is a guy who's been there already. He's, you know, this is a win win for me. You know, I'm not afraid to die. He says, so I appeal to Caesar. Now, when a Roman citizen did that, no turning back. Um Felix has a problem at this point in time because he's got to write out a report, uh, Festus. He's got to write out a report being clear on why this man's being sent to Caesar. You can't just show up in in Rome with a note that says, you know, I'm not really sure it's kind of a weird situation. You can't do that. That would be the end of Festus. So he now realizes he's got to come up with something to say in verse 12 as he hears this appeal to Caesar. And then in verse 13, we find out that Agrippa and Bernice come into the scene, and Festus is thankful for that. It says in verse 13, chapter 25, And after certain days... King Agrippa, this is King Agrippa II, and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. So Festus is the new procurator of the area. Um, this is King Agrippa II. He has jurisdiction in parts of Syria, Lebanon, and northern uh, Israel. And he also has an interesting responsibility. Uh, Herod the Great, his grandfather, had started the temple, pretty much completed it. Herod the, uh, Antipas Agrippa II, his father, um, was the one who, you know, was struck down by worms standing in the theater because he touched the glory of God. Um, And again, his great uncle is the one who killed James, the brother of John. So this is kind of a, a, a family that's remarkable. And with the jurisdiction that Agrippa has, he comes down because he also has a title that he is guardian of the temple. And that he is the one who appoints the new high priest when they change. So his family, we're going to find out very interesting. We read about Felix, who was married to Drusilla, and Josephus saying she was the most beautiful woman in, in all of the, the East. And uh, Drusilla and Bernice are sisters, but the weirder thing is Agrippa is their brother. So, Herod Agrippa I, his oldest daughter, is Bernice. Then Agrippa the first is born, and then Drusilla after her. So as they come up together, you have this Agrippa, the first, the second, I'm sorry. And he has these jurisdictions. And because Festus knows he has specific responsibility in Jerusalem relative to the temple itself, and to the exchanging of the high priest, he's the last of the Idumean Herods, that he has a very specific knowledge of what's going on in this area. Now, Bernice, who's come up with him, is his sister. Um, some say this is an innocent relationship, but too many early writers say they're in an incestuous relationship, Agrippa the I and Bernice. Bernice is first married when she is 13 years old, um, to, uh, let me think, Marcus Julius Alexander. Her father uh, gave her away, Agrippa the Second to that person. And it only lasted like two years. He died. After she's done with Marcus, then she marries her uncle, Herod, king of Calcius, that doesn't last long, so then she comes back to Caesarea to live with Agrippa II, her brother, in incest. That starts a big hubbub and a big rumor, which they want to kill. So then he marries her to this king, Polemo of Cilicia. And she's putting on this air this like she's a serious Jewess. And she says, well, you have to be circumcised before I can marry you and become a Jew. He's willing to do that, no doubt, because of how beautiful she is. That marriage takes place. In no time, she's not happy with that. She comes back to Agrippa, where we have her now, living in incest with her brother. As time goes on, she falls in love with Vespasian, Tacitus Vespasian and has, she's his mistress until his son uh, Titus Vespasian comes to destroy Jerusalem. Now she's much older than he is, but she ends up in an affair with Titus Vespasian, the one who destroys Jerusalem. Now her Jewishness comes forward with a grip of the second, trying to convince the Jews in Jerusalem, 66 AD, and so forth, don't rebel against the Romans. They're trying to commit, you know convince the Romans to be gracious to the Jews. They were in the middle of that. They ultimately had to flee. And when Titus Vespasian destroyed Jerusalem, she ends up in an affair with him. He goes back to Rome to be made Caesar, and she follows him. And he puts her off there, because it looks bad for his reputation that he was in an affair with this older woman. So this is a gal who's been around. Uh, Marcus, her uncle, her brother, uh, king of Palermo, uh, her brother again, um, Tacitus Vespasian, and then Titus Vespasian, uh, so interesting, to look at and look, she plays this role. they said at one point she took Josephus tells, she takes a Nazarite vow to show how religious serious she is, but like any Jew that took a Nazarite vow, they know their savior messiah it didn 't mean anything so look, look, as we go into this, look, look at the people that are in power. Paul said in romans, which he 's already written. The powers that be are ordained of God. Daniel, when he wrote, he said, God raises up one king, he takes down another, and sometimes he puts over a nation even the basest of men. And here's Paul, a shining star, committed to the Lord, walking before the Lord, and the people he's answering to are incestuous. They're angry they're cruel, and those are the ones that are in power. Just use your imagination. (laughs) When we follow Paul through this, the the amazing thing is how gracious he is to them. Because what he's going to do is give his testimony how the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus and how gracious he was to him. So Paul, in these circumstances, remarkably, demonstrates such a graceful spirit. Because he knows if I can be saved, anybody can get in, even these guys. And Felix, before he handed the, the, the area to Festus, um, Felix, said, trembled when he listened to Paul, said, you I'll, I'll, put him off, I'll hear you again later. So Paul knows he has the ability to get through the the hearts of these people. So here's Portius Festus now. He's an authority, took it from Felix. He inherits Paul. He's got to write a letter to Caesar. He can't deny his appeal, but he's trying to figure out this is all news to him. He doesn't understand any of this, and he's trying to figure out how to handle it. And in his mind, you know, this is a great break for these two to come. Paul's in the middle of it. He knows Jesus told him in chapter 23, you're going to go to Rome. He has no doubt about that. After certain days, King Agrippa II and Bernice, they came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. Greet the new procurator. They're actually subordinate to him. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, now he's maintained this title of king like King Herod, but actually the procurator there, Festus, has more authority than he does in the area. He, he says to the king, he talks to the king saying, now there's a certain man left in bonds by Felix. Now that word bonds there can mean shackles, but it also can mean he's under guard he's under jurisdiction, he's in custody, was what it probably means for Paul, because it was illegal to put a Roman citizen in chains. Well, he, he said, I inherited this person here uh, in my jurisdiction, uh, under house arrest probably, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have a judgment against him, they said they've got something they need to settle here. now, the very interesting thing as we go into this from verses fourteen through eighteen, we have conversations that somehow Luke gets record of. Does he know military people that were there? Does he know another physician? Maybe he knows. The physician who takes care of Festus. Uh, I, there, somehow he gives us this, these details that he was not present for. Remarkably, then these things come to him. The Lord makes sure we have them this evening. He, he says, About whom, you know, these priests in Jerusalem, they inform me they're desiring to have judgment against this guy. They want me to bring him, to whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have his accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself according to the crime laid against him, by the way, which is still in our legal system today. So Festus is looking, telling him this deal. I I need to... Get a grip on this. This is the situation that I'm facing. Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay, on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. I'm new here, took over for Felix, don't know the story. Against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none such accusation of such things that I suppose. They wanted to kill him. I didn't hear anything like that. But they had a certain questions against him of their own superstition. And of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed was alive. So he he sees this. You know he can't he can't grasp what's genuine and and, and the reality of this because he says he, he, they had questions of their own and he calls it superstition. It's a derogatory term here. The, these guys got all this you know religious fanatic stuff cooking, which I'm not familiar with, and it's in regards to this one Jesus, which was dead. He says. Whom Paul affirmed, it's in the present tense, he continues and continues to affirm that he's alive, he says. This is what I'm facing. Paul had already written 1 Corinthians, where he said, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith also is in vain. So it says, you know, he gets in front of us, and he keeps affirming this Jesus is risen. He's alive. First chapter, when the Lord tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other most parts of the earth... You track that word marturo, martus, and so forth through the book of Acts. And the other word most often associated with is the resurrection that they bore witness of the resurrection. They gave testimony of the resurrection. This is that generation. How many of them, the 500 that saw him on the hill, You know, how many are still alive? Did Paul see him? We don't know. As a member, I believe, of the Sanhedrin, did he hear his debates with the scribes and, and the Pharisees in, in his last days there, that last week in Jerusalem? We don't know, but there's this incredible testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through this book, and look, it, it is our responsibility as well. Call, you know, Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, which he had already written, about the resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, we got nothing to say. But in the same chapter, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. We used to have that in our nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. He says, we shall be changed. He's expecting in his day. It wasn't in his day, but it's in our day. Are you expecting it? And Paul is saying to people who live in light of being changed in the twinkling of an eye, if Christ isn't risen, we don't have anything to say to anybody. Look, the world is hopeless. All of the Bernices and all the Agrippas the II and all of the crazy people that are out there who we get so frustrated with, ah, you know, just blow the horn and leave them here, Lord. You know, get us out of here. Paul is standing before them, he he tells us in the prison epistles, he's the prisoner of the Lord. He's not the prisoner of Rome. And he accepts the place that he has standing in front of these corrupt, immoral, you know, people that are in this point in time ruling. They're they're ruling. They have the, the steering wheel. And the Festus is saying, I, I listened to all these guys come down. There was no real accusation, nothing worthy of death. They just, Paul kept talking about this Jesus Christ, what they said was dead. He keeps affirming that he's alive, affirming. And because I doubt, had doubted such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged on these matters. But when Paul had appealed... To be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Now, Augustus there is not Caesar Augustus that we know. He's long gone. Sebastos is the Greek word for emperor. The Latin word is Augustus. And because Luke is writing about a Roman court, he calls it Nero at this point in time, who's Caesar Augustus has the idea of being revered, uh, or being held in high esteem, or being worshipped. So he, sa- he says, I reserved him unto hearing, to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, he's speaking of Nero, and I commanded him to be kept until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear this man myself tomorrow, said he, Festus, thou shalt hear him. I'm interested. He oversees the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to be in the middle of all of this problems and fighting and violence. So he says, I I want to hear this. I want to get a better idea of what's going on. And on the morrow, look at verse 23. On the morrow, the next day, and we're in the amphitheater there in Caesarea, when we go, if you go on a tour with us, we stand right there, and you can see where Festus was, where Bernice was, where Felix was, you know, the, the whole crew. Then Agrippa said, tomorrow you're going to do this. So on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice, look what it says, with great pomp, imagine politics like that, with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing. They're in the theater. It says then, with the cheap captains, plural, uh, the Greek is the chiliarchs, the tribunes. Josephus tells us that the tribune was over a cohort, which was a thousand men. That the tribune had ten centurions under him. And that the thousand men were called a cohort, and that there were five cohorts in Caesarea, 5,000 Roman soldiers, plus conscripts from other company that cooked and helped and sometimes went forward with a spear. Maybe the spearmen we read about before were, were conscripts. But here are the tribunes they come to sit in and to listen to this, who each have influence you know, over a thousand men. And then the principal men of the city, these are all the civil authorities, the local politicians and so forth, at Festus' command. So Festus is there. And Paul then was brought forth. You know, I, I think, what does he think? He walks in. Besides them, how full is the theater? Agrippa II is there. Bernice is there. Festus is there. You know, all of these Chiliarchs, tribunes are there. The chief men of the city, no doubt the, the great influencers. We don't know, is Cornelius there? He was a centurion. Is he still in the area? Is Philip there, who still lived, it seems, in the area of Caesarea? You just imagine. But I guarantee you this. Paul, who already wrote that he was a prisoner of the Lord, is thinking What a great audience. I can't believe, you know, he wasn't chained to Rome. Rome was chained to him in his perspective. And he thinks, I get to talk to a king, to his sister, to the procurator, to the tribunes, influence over 5,000 men, to the mayor and the district attorney and all the civil authorities in the city. Just imagine, you know, he had to be lit up when he looked at this situation. And no doubt he remembers back in chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, uh, the Lord said to Ananias, I want you to go your way. He's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is standing in that place. And what a great sense he must have of why he's been held up there for two years and so forth, standing in front of this crew. Luke, no doubt, had talked to Paul about this when he wrote, But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or resist. Luke wrote that. Luke's there with them. So, you know, they must be reminding each other and talking about this. And now Paul's got this this crowd, the influence unimaginable to other countries, to thousands of men, so to thousands of families. And Paul looks and realizes, Lord, this is just where you told me I'd stand. You told me not to sweat it. You would give me the word. You said, I will give you the words, what to say. So we have him here. And then Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews, it doesn't mean all of the Jews alive on earth, it's the religious leaders in Jerusalem, all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not live any longer. But when I found that he committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him. Now, this is great to hear what he says to Agrippa here. He says, of whom I have no certain thing to write. I'm in a pickle here. I can't send him to Caesar if, if I don't write something that's competent. I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him before you... And especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, will be finished, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes that are laid against him. So Paul's drug in. Festus says to Agrippa, look, here's the deal. And this is not a formal hearing. This is not a trial. This is not judicial. This is just Paul standing to repeat for Agrippa his side of the argument. So it's no formal court hearing at all. It's just Paul giving his testimony. Now look, this will be the third time in the book of Acts Paul gives his testimony in regards to the road to Damascus. This one is the longest. Each one has little you know, changes, little things in them that are relative to the particular circumstance. Um, and here he, he, he remarkably, I think, as we go into this, it's his eighth sermon in the book of Acts, but it's his third testimony about his conversion. It says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul... Thou art permitted to speak, not a trial, for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand, and he answered for himself. And listen how remarkable he is. He knows he's a Hellenist. He's a, a Roman Jew, Greek influence. He understands all of this. He says, I, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. I'm blessed to be here, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially, he says, I'm, I'm especially happy, especially blessed, because I know thee to be an expert in all the customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Now, he kind of sets him up and said this may be a little long, but he says, he butters him up as well. He, there's a courtesy there of uh, royalty. And he says, he says, I'm so pleased you're here. This is a blessing for me. I can give an answer. And particularly because I know that you are familiar with all of these customs of the Jews. You have this all nailed down as the, one, as the, the curator of the temple, the one who maintains the temple and the priesthood. So he says, so I beseech you, hear me patiently. He says, my manner of life from my youth Which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem. So we find out from his youth, he was at Jerusalem. This speaks of a young boy. We know before he grew up in the school of Gamaliel, Gamaliel. Now it says, from my youth, he says, I've been here among my own nation at Jerusalem know all the Jews. The Jews are aware of this. The leadership knows this. Which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most and straightest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. You know, this is going to be, he's going to, you know, verse six, he says, and now I stand and I'm judged for the hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers. He says, to Agrippa, knowing he knows a lot of this um, uh, there 's a supposedly Jewish blood amongst the Idumeans, and he 's half of that, and he says he says, "Look, you know what a Pharisee is, and those, those were the orthodox, those were the strictest, those were the ones we 're kind of Pharisees in the church today because of the way we hold to orthodoxy and the Word of God, the truth. Hopefully we're not the other side of Phariseeism, but hopefully there's a positive side that we maintain. And um, he 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 says, this hope I'm being questioned about is the hope of our fathers. What he says is, I adhere strictly, Agrippa, to all of the Old Testament scriptures, to the Torah, to the writings, to the prophets. And in them I see the hope of Israel. Now he's realized it's Messiah, Jesus, the risen Messiah, and his kingdom. He said, but this is what I believe. I'm not a non-Jew. I haven't turned away from the word of God from the Old Testament. He says, I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand and I'm being judged because of the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Now, by the way, you may be judged for that same reason. For the hope that you have. We're, we're told that in our generation, we should be able to give an answer for the hope that we have in this hopeless present world. And it is hopeless. And the same kind of people are ruling. You know, Daniel tells us it will be a revived Roman Empire, evidently with revived Roman morals as well. And he says here, you understand this. This was the hope, and it's the hope of the Jews. And he's thinking, man, if Agrippa and these, you know, these people get saved, and all these chiliarchs, these tribunes. And so he's laying it on. And he knows, no doubt, in his heart that the Lord's giving it to him, as Jesus had said, as Luke had recorded. He says, "Unto which promise, notice this: our twelve tribes. There were no lost tribes. Okay, please, Un- the promise unto our twelve tribes, instantly serving God. The idea is earnestly or intently serving God, day and night. Hope to come our." Are the tribes have the same hope they, they continued earnestly and intently serving God night and day to have this hope? For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why he says should it be brought, um, should it be thought a thing incredible with you, knowing he's so familiar with all this, that God should raise the dead? Why should that be so amazing, he says, to you? Chapter 20 had said this in verse 9. Where am I? Looking at my computer notes. Um, Well, I got the wrong verse there. Oh, yeah. He, he, he must be thinking of Eutychus. He must be thinking of Lazarus. He must be thinking of the widow of Nain's son. You know, he, he has, you know, complete knowledge of these things. And he's now tying all of that to Jesus, the Messiah, who was raised permanently in another sense. But he says, why should it be you know, thought a thing incredible with you? You've heard of all of these circumstances that God should raise the dead. I verily thought truly within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You, you probably heard of this. I was determined to destroy this movement. He says, which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints did I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against him. A little bit of a controversy here. Some say, well, he, he, the, the word voice there is vote. I gave my vote, as he did when Stephen was stoned. So some say, well, the Jewish man, under the jurisdiction of the religious leaderships that was given authority, Exusia, had no right to vote unless he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Others say, well, no, surely he was young. He was probably under 30. At this point, he's not, but probably then, and you had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And it seems that Paul was. We have no record of his wife like we do. He says, I have the right, like the other apostles, to take a wife, a sister along with me. I don't exercise that right. But here it says he he cast a vote. He said, I was in Jerusalem and many of, notice this, the saints. He magnifies his sin here. It stayed with him all of these years. Many of the saints. You know, Ananias is going to say to the Lord, when he appears to him, he's going to say, you don't understand this guy's reputation. He's put to death many of the saints. This guy is a nuisance and a threat. And then Jesus is going to say, no, you're going to show him, I'm going to send him to the Gentiles and so forth. Here he stands. He says, these are things I did to the saints, the holy ones, God's precious sons and daughters. I shut them up in prison, having received authority, exousia, from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and I compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even to strange cities, to foreign cities. I got a jurisdiction from the temple. I, you know, I went to Syria, I went to Damascus, I went beyond the borders of Israel to try to snuff out this movement. The infirmary. Now look, by the way. It's been eaten at him since you watched Stephen. So in chapter 7, Stephen stands up and he gives this sermon to the, the Sanhedrin, the religious Jews, and they are staggered. It said there's not a peep. And it says at the end, his face was glowing like an angel, and they, they all grit their teeth. They couldn't stand what had happened, and Paul was there. And then he sees Stephen forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His face glowing like an angel, and he yields himself praying for them. Paul never got rid of that. He could never escape it. And no doubt it made him angrier. You you know how that is, don't you? You have relatives. Some of you. And you know sometimes how angry they can get. When you're trying to tell them about the Lord. Ah, not again. Look, if they're really getting angry, maybe they're a Paul the Apostle. They're close to the edge. Don't be afraid to push them over. Um, And as well, you know sometimes how angry they get at you. You know, when they hear these truths. Because they're pointed. And they're divine. And it's the word of God. And it's not... A philosophy or an ism. It's the living word of gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, he says, you know, I was so angry. He said, I even, you know, pursued these people to foreign cities. Whereupon he says, as I went to Damascus, tells us two things with authority and commission from the chief priest. So he has exousia, which is the right. That right that he has has been commissioned, sent on this pursuit by the chief priests. And Paul's going to give his testimony now. And the three times we have it, it, it's almost verbatim. You know, when Jesus appears to you in his glory and talks to you, it makes a great impression. And, and he doesn't have a problem, even though he tells the story three times. It's the same structure, the same skeleton. The meat's a little different in a few places, but it's the same thing. And he says here, I, I remember, I had, I had authority and commission from the chief priests to go to Damascus, and I was going to get those Christian Jews there the way, those who followed the Nazarene. He says, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them that journeyed with me. And when we were all all fallen to the earth, now this is the only place we find that here, he, he he says, there was this light that shone. Any of you guys been in the Middle East? I've been there many times. The sun is hot. It is hot there. I was just heard from uh, the, the Zambia team. They say when they get off the plane, to walk into the airport, in Dubai, which is beautiful, it's air conditioned, but the walkway from the plane into the airport, they said it was like an oven. It was so hot there, it was cooking, you know. And if you've been in the Middle East, the sun and the meridian, it's so brilliant. At noon, it says here, it's midday. And he said, but all of a sudden, this divine light shone in its brilliance. That's our word here. Its brilliance did outshine the noonday sun. The, the word there, shining, has an idea of shining around. And he's saying there was a brilliance that that made the sun seem dim, and it shone as a halo around us. That's, that's the, you, you break down the words, what he's saying. He said, he said, a light from heaven above the brilliance of the sun shining round about us as we journeyed. And when we were all fallen, to the earth. They're all on their face, is what it (coughs) insinuates. No doubt some of them are shaking. He said, I heard a voice. The voice I heard was speaking to me. Now we find out in the other ones, they hear the sound of the voice. They don't understand the enunciation or what's said. There's a sense of sound from heaven, like in John's gospel. They heard something rumble, the voice of God. So those that are with him, they hear, but they don't hear diction, they don't hear pronunciation. And the light terrifies them. They all fall to the earth. And he said, in the middle of that brilliant light, that halo of light around us, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, this is Aramaic, this is the language he spoke Hebrew to the crowds it, this is not a dialect. This was the spoken language of the day, Hebrewai in the Greek, which is both the the Aramaic, Royal Aramaic, and it's the same letters in the in the the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet today. All the Hebrew letters are Ar- Aramaic letters. So. He says, it was in my language. I heard him say my name, and we know by the two Saul's that it's Aramaic. That's the way it's written out in the Greek here. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, I'm convinced when this happens, the light comes, Paul falls to the ground, (coughs) And he doesn't, I don't believe this voice is angry. The Lord could have shook the ground if he wanted to. He could have just smoked him if he saw him as an enemy. He says, but I heard in my own tongue, Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why? Heaven asking a question. Like Jesus didn't know the answer. He wants Paul to answer the question. This voice speaking to me, I'm sure, with a a measure of love that we don't understand, and holiness that would have knocked them all down. In the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the goads. He had been kicking against the goads since he watched Stephen die. He was under conviction. He had been kicking against those goads. It's interesting, Psalm 32, verse 9, um, says this to us. It says, be not, be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with a bit and a bridle, lest they come near unto thee. You know, the beast of burden, the the goad, an ox goad, when you're driving your oxen, it was a pointed stick. Shamgar took an ox goad and killed a bunch of people with it. So there wasn't any light particularly light tool, but you stuck that ox in the rear end, and he didn't like that, as I don't either. And and the first thing that the animal does is kick, but after a day or so, it learns to yield instead of kicking, because kicking has done no good. It's been an exercise in frustration. And then that goat ends up steering them. And he's saying, Paul, you're like a stubborn ox, and and, and you're just learning here. You're kicking against the goads. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to kick against the goads. It says this in Ecclesiastes. It says, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, says the words of the wise, they're like goads. They're given by one shepherd. Look, I think for you and I, maybe for myself, it's useless to resist going the wrong way. Because he loves us and we're going to get goaded. Here's the interesting thing about that as well, too. It was proverbial in classic Greek. Dionysius is recorded as saying to someone, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, ain't it? This was like, you know, 24 and 7, you know. I mean, the interesting thing is heaven speaks to Paul with a, a proverbial saying of the day. Heaven knows what we're saying down here. Heaven knows how to come across. Heaven knows what woke is. And heaven says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul understood as a, as a, as a Hellenist Jew, he understood classical Greek writers that, that that phrase had been used. It's hard for thee to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? He says then, and I said, notice this, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Imagine that. The light is so brilliant, he's been blinded. It's shown around him and the small army he was with, and they're all on their faces on the ground. A voice now comes to him, says, this is hard, ain't it? He's just doing this all the wrong way, my friend. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And he knew exactly what that meant. Who are you, Lord? The light would make sure all of that was in focus. He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise. Stand upon thy feet, blinded. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. He uses a very interesting word there. It's not the typical word for servant. The, the, the idea is under rower. I want to make you... An under rower, a underling. You're going to be working under my jurisdiction. You know, you're going to do the things I ask you. It's not as a servant he's saying, you're going to be my helper. It's very interesting. You're going to work with me. Paul uses this, in, and it's the only time after this in the book of Acts, we have the word. He he had written it in 1 Corinthians Chapter four, he said, let a man so account of us as of the ministers, the under rowers of Christ. You remember the Ben-Hur and you guys watch that they're down in the ship and they're chained, And th- those were under rowers down there and they were rowing. So that's why he, when he gets a senator, he changed them to the, to the driftwood and says, you serve this ship. You know, he said it back to him. But he says, we're, we're ministers, we're under rowers of Christ. And stewards, now, because Christ said that to him on the road to Damascus, you're going to be an under rower. He says, "We're, we're ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We have responsibility in regards to the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man. Yea, I don't even judge my own self. If we're going to serve Christ, we're going to take heat for it. If we're going to serve Christ, we're going to do it imperfectly. If we're going to serve Christ, we're going to learn along the way. If we're going to serve Christ, God is going to continue the good work he's begun in each of us. And if we're going to serve Christ, we're going to realize the measure of grace we stand in. Paul would say again in Corinthians, those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. You know, again, because Isaiah, the year the king Uzziah died, I lifted up my eyes and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. His glory was there. And, And then Isaiah said, I said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. In the two chapters before that, over and over, he said, Woe unto those who did this. Woe unto those who do that. Our sin always looks worse on other people. Woe unto those who do that. You know? And then it says, But when the glory of the Lord was apparent to him, he said, Woe am I. You know, I'm a man of unclean. Woe, woe is me. And again, Daniel chapter 10, when the Lord appeared to him in glory, he said, All of my comeliness turned to ashes. All of my beauty just disappeared. John on the isle of Patmos who had leaned on the Lord's breast at the last supper said when the Lord appeared to him he fell down like a dead man dead man so Paul says those who compare themselves among themselves now it's always easy to find another human and say well at least I'm not like that dead you know it's you know always or I'm more spiritual than they are or my perspective on ministry is better than theirs Paul says people who make comparisons among other human beings are not wise because you're not being conformed into their image. The image we're being conformed into is this image with a brilliance that outshines the noonday sun, a holiness that would make every one of us fall on our face and realize, "Woe is me! Woe is me!" And I've experienced the Lord's presence like that, to to where I could hardly breathe, and and. I felt like I was suffocating. And the only thing I could think was, I am such a sinful man. But what was crushing me was his love and his grace. It was so heavy. It was suffocating. I could hardly breathe. I thought, Lord, I'm going to die if this continues. But somehow that brought everything else into perspective. Everything else. And I think for Saul, imagine him. He saw the light itself. He heard the voice itself. And and now this voice is saying to him, you're going to be an under rower, an underling. So you're going to kick against a different goad now. You know, you're going to take a place you have not known. You're going to be subordinate to the one you've been persecuting, serving, uh, persecuting, trying to kill his saints and so forth. He says... Rise, stand on your feet. This is the reason I have appeared unto you. For this purpose, to make thee an underling, underling, a minister. He says, and a witness, a martyr. One who would lay down their life for Christ. Both of these things which thou hast seen. You're going to be a witness of the things that you've seen And of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. And you think of that being said. You know, in one sense, you can think that's demeaning. Isaiah, speaking of the Lord, says, Behold there my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Thus saith... God, the Lord, he hath created the heavens, he has stretched them out, he has spread forth the earth, um, and that that comes out of it, he giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. I will hold thine hand, and keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people." And for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prisoners. Paul's gonna say, gonna say right after this, I've done this that you may bring the Gentiles out of darkness into the light. The one, the one who is speaking to him, himself an underling in a sense very much of the same heart that Paul now is going to step into and learn about, the grace of his Savior and of his Lord and now of his Master, wonderfully. Uh, And I think that's why, when he talks to Agrippa and Bernice, in the midst of their moral insanity, and Festus, and these people who have jurisdiction over him, which are sinners, I mean, when are we going to be brought before civil authorities for teaching our kids that there's only one way to be saved. For teaching our kids there's such a thing as a male and a female. For teaching our children that marriage ordained by God is between a man and a woman. How long will it be before we protest somebody is indoctrinating our children in elementary school about gender and about these different things. Look, the point is that world is blind. Paul said when he wrote Romans that the problem is they have held down the truth in unrighteousness, therefore God gave them up. That's the Roman world. It's around us now, but yet we're here for such a time as this. Who knows who we're going to get the witness to still in these last days? Who knows what Saul of Tarsus, who wants to put us in prison or, or, or sentence us to death, is going to hear whatever witness we give. And it's going to set that person kicking against the gods. And one day, at the initiation of our precious Lord and Savior, they're going to become our brother or our sister in Christ. Family in heaven, you know, we're the best dysfunctional family going. You have to understand that. I wouldn't be too hard on each other, and if you become that way, I'd look up instead of a cross. And I wouldn't be too hard on that world out there because that's what I came out of. I was a full fledged member. And I didn't become a Christian because of my intellect, I was drafted. I didn't sign up. I was recruited by his love and by his grace, and he changed my life. And it's so interesting for me to watch Paul in these environments, where no doubt the Holy Spirit is on him. He has more to say that's pointed and filled with authority and truth than any of the supposed rulers and tribunes and, and leaders that are sitting around him. And I think he does it with incredible grace. Because grace received becomes grace bestowed. He knows what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And he's willing to accept anyone else having a Damascus road in their lives. Rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister... And a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. And of course, that's the same thing the Lord did, Isaiah tells us, of bringing people, speaking to the Gentiles, bringing them from darkness to light, and so forth. And verse 17 then says, And delivering thee from the people, from the Jews, and from the Gentiles, unto whom now... I send thee, you know, until your mission's over, you're indestructible. I'm sending you. You've spoken to the Jews. You're going to speak to the Gentiles. Now, remarkably, he will get to Rome and, and he will his appeal will become, come before Nero. Nero, uh, at this time, been in power sometimes again around five years or so. Reasonable at this point because his mentor, Seneca, and I forget the other guy's name, Ballas, his first two or three names, have, have mentored him. So Nero has a semblance of reasonableness at this point in time. He will hear Paul's testimony and then release him. But after he refuses that testimony, he loses his mind. What else is there? And Paul talks about the way Rome and, and Rome can be given up. People who hear the truth, hold down the truth in unrighteousness, God gave them up. Are you, are you glad he didn't give you up? And you're surrounded by a bunch of people who get under your skin, he hadn't given them up either. In fact, Jesus tells us that his father, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whosoever, that's who we are, we're the whosoever's, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have presently tonight, not when we get there, everlasting life. It's what's inside of us tonight. It's why this doesn't seem like a cartoon to us. It's real to us, because it lives inside of us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, let's pray. Let's lift our voices. Lord, look, you're here tonight and you know Christ, your Savior. Please come up and ask questions. Let us give you a Bible. You can come up and say, bah, humbug, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense. Come on and say it. Or you can come up and say, you know what, I'm broken. I, I'm tired of all this. It, I'm, and, and I am immoral. I'm insane. Like Can, if, can God really save me? if he saved Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus who was slaughtering the church and making people blaspheme the name of Jesus, and God in his grace reached to him and said, this is hard, isn't it? It's hard. He can do that in any of our lives. Let's bow our hearts, let's pray, and then let's worship together. Lord, I know that you've overheard, Lord, and, and in so many ways we live in the book of Acts now, Lord, and Each day we are so dependent upon you, Lord. Each day we run out of, in our own strength, patience and endurance and will, Lord, to move forward sometimes. So often, Lord, in our own life, we feel like we're kicking against the goads. But, Lord, you come and you fill us afresh with your spirit. You bind up the brokenhearted. You have not changed. You set the captives free still, Lord. And every day you renew us, Lord. Let us hold on to you, Lord Jesus. In these days, we're we're surrounded with so much of this insanity. Lord, let us hold on to you with all of our heart and all of our strength. We know there's so much at stake, Lord. I do, Lord. Keep us in your right hand. We trust that you do that. We pray in your name. Amen.